0: You can be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to everyone. Glad to see you here this morning. I want to continue this morning with the subject that I started three weeks ago, and that of following the progression that God had God's plan for his people throughout the Bible, throughout the Old and New Testament, and even into today. And the goal is to see that although God's plan had different phases for different times in history, that God himself remains the same God through all of it. The title last time was Salt or Separation, Asking a Question, and the uh, taken from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, we are called to be salt. And also 2 Corinthians 6, 17, we're called to be separated. And uh, I asked, do these two concepts work together? Or do they um, conflict with each other? And we looked at that some. Salt and separation are both used as a means of preservation. And the idea of preservation um, for God's people through the ages. But they do so in very different ways. Uh, separation. Uh, preserves by isolation and avoidance with any outside contact or contamination, but salt actually changes the food from within in order to prevent decay. So keeping those in mind again, the Bible talks about both, method, both methods. Uh, both are used in the Bible, and in the Old Testament primarily by separation, and Jesus' method in the New Testament was centered more around being the salt and light to those around us. And as I said, the goal here is to show the progression of God's people um, through those different phases. We say that God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Errol, I appreciated your devotional on belief. I had to think that the the verse that says the message is to the Greeks' foolishness. Uh, The Greeks, I think, were very intelligent people. And sometimes belief doesn't always seem very intelligent. It takes a certain degree of faith to believe. So if one would read through the Old and New Testament, and I encourage you, if you haven't read through the Bible um, in its entirety, to do that. Um, I am slowly working my way. It was supposed to be a one-year thing, and it's a little longer than that. Uh, A chronological Bible, which is kind of interesting because the Old Testament especially is not set up in the order in which things occurred. And to observe the way that God led His people... Um, the, the, the methods by which he used in the Old Testament compared then to what he used in the New Testament. See, there's quite a contrast between God's people, his methods in the Old Testament, compared to the New. And one could easily be confused by reading the Old Testament. They say, well, that was a whole different God back then. Um, you know, he commanded them in the Old Testament they should destroy their enemies. And if they themselves sinned, it was often met with very immediate death. Whereas in the New Testament, they were commanded then to love their enemies and God's judgment for his own people is not only delayed, but was tempered by the grace, by his grace because of Jesus' death on the cross then. So we see a very, a very difference, um, very different in the way that God presents himself. Yet we know that God does not change. So we conclude the differences must simply be displaying different aspects of God. Uh, God must be bigger than just one aspect that we see of him. There must be a lot more to it To him. So God is, I believe, through the Bible, beginning in the Old Testament, revealing himself in a progressive way to mankind. Beginning in the Old Testament, he establishes a foundation of law and order, of holiness, um, a black and white difference between himself and the many false gods worshipped by other nations around him. And he is separating his chosen people in the Old Testament to show the world around them that that their God is different. Um, Their God is not the same. He is stronger. He is mightier. He is more powerful than the false gods around them. He is holy, he is righteous and just, rather than greedy and cruel and corrupt as the false gods were portrayed, which in fact they were. And while God demands his people's allegiance and punishes them them if they disobey, he also rewards their obedience with blessings. And we see this even in the Old Testament, that the closer people... Um, came to know God and, and how they served Him. Um, they served Him out of love, unlike the false gods who were primarily served out of fear, fear of what they would do if the people would not honor them. And so God works to establish His identity, both in among His people in the Old Testament, as well as the non-believers that they were surrounded with. Last time I kind of left off with God's chosen people, they were beginning to enter the promised land, the land promised uh, to them many generations before, God made a promise to Abraham that he would create a people and through, well, you guys know the steps there, they had entered in this new land. And so God was becoming known to the native people of this new land and they feared him and they feared God's people because they understood that the power came from their God and God's people, I believe, understood this too. And they made a statement, uh, Joshua 24, if you would turn with me to that. Uh, Joshua 24. The book of Joshua marks the end of the Israelites' conquest of the Promised Land, and the land was more or less in their possession by now. Um, they had either killed or chased off most of their enemies, and the different sections were divided up to the different tribes. Everybody kind of had their little spot, and life was starting to kind of settle down to a bit more normal. And Joshua's time, Joshua as a person, his time was coming to an end, both as a leader. And his time on earth, Um, he would have been quite a bit older than the rest of the people because he was one of only two that would have made it through the wilderness without dying off. So he must have been much older than the rest of them. So Moses had led the Exodus out of Egypt, and Joshua had continued that journey. First he was a spy, we know the story there, and finally here as their leader... And here in Joshua 24, he is giving his final address to the people before he dies. He knows his time is ending, and he is giving his final address to the people here. So I'm going to read Joshua chapter 24. And it's a bit long here, but follow with me if you would. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel for their heads, their judges, their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Then Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. They served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him through the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Sarah to possess, but to Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did to the, among them. Afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought you. But I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel, and set and called Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam, therefore he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you, also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities for which you did not build, and you dwelt in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your father has served on the other side of the river. And in Egypt, serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, Choose you yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, that were the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went. And among all the people whom we passed, and the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites, who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sin. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. People said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute, and ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up under an oak that was there by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be witness for you, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua and the people depart, each to his own inheritance. So God, through Joshua, gave this little history lesson of the people. Just kind of reminding them again of all that he had done for them. And the people at this point fully gave God the credit he deserved for all the things that God had done for them up to this point, and they pledged their allegiance to him forever. Now, forever kind of seems a short time. As long as God's people obeyed his laws he gave them, and that they maintained the separation he asked of them, he continued to bless them. And this sounds pretty simple. Um, Just do what you're told and maintain what you're given, and everything will be fine. But if we read on, um, they just barely settled in their new land before they began checking out the practices of those that lived around them. And while they had mostly got rid of the ungodly people around them, um, there were still some that lived among them. They weren't quite as thorough as they should have been, and there were still some of the ones that God had told them to get rid of living among them. And we think of the... the, um, challenge of the conquest of this new land and the uh, the uncertainties, probably the excitement, um, that was kind of over. They were settled in and um, farming and doing whatever they were doing. Uh, Joshua had passed away and daily life became kind of monotonous as it so often does and they became bored and careless in their daily lives. They intermarried with the leftovers of the heathen people of the land who then brought their heathen gods with them. And this confused and polluted the worship of the one true God. And as individuals, and then as a whole, they fell away from God, drawn by this new and the different they saw around them. Um, this, the God had gotten, I don't want to say boring, but this, this new, these new gods were very intriguing, and they were drawn away. And they were not completely isolated, and so they found it very difficult to maintain their separation. Now that they were starting to mingle with those around them, um, this separation wasn't working out so well, and they began to, to be contaminated with the, the heathen practices around them. And as they fell away, God would send judgment, usually in the form of attacks by and then forced slavery to a foreign nation. Uh, those close by and those far away would, would find them easy prey to, to take to take them, and to take their crops, take their food, uh, whatever they did. Then they would uh, repent, they would tell God they were sorry, uh, that they knew they did wrong, and God would send someone to deliver them. Then they would forget again. The cycle would go on and on, and the book of Judges says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. They did not have a real leader, not a real spiritual leader at that point, and so they slowly abandoned the laws of God. The book of Judges covers approximately 325 years and about a dozen deliverers or judges, as it's called, that God would send to defeat these enemies that were oppressing them, and things would go back to normal. So we had this, over a course of a couple hundred years, this continuing cycle of where they would obey God, things would go well, they would get lazy, they would fall away, um, they would start disobeying God's commandments, and somebody would come and would take over the country, or the people, and they would go into slavery. And they would say, oh, it's, it's our fault, uh, we did wrong. They would repent, God would deliver them, and the whole cycle would go over and over again. And if that seems like a, a depressing cycle, um, I'm sure it was. Um, it just That's the way we do sometimes as well, but here we have a condensed version of what they lived with for a couple hundred years. Uh, Gideon was one of those judges, we know the story of Gideon. And they eventually decided the leadership of God through his prophets, through these judges, was just insufficient. And they decided, you know what what uh, they need is a king, like they're seeing in you know, all these nations around them. If we just had a king, all these problems would take care of themselves because then we know what we're doing. And if we turn to Samuel I'm sorry, first Samuel chapter eight, they're asking for a king. And again, I'm gonna read this here. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The names of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, um, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations Around us, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, "Give us a king to judge us." So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, "Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing so to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice, however." You shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel took all the words of the Lord of the people who asked him for a king, and he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons, appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. (coughs) He will appoint captains over his thousands, captains over his fifties, and, and will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and, will make, and to make his weapons of war and equipment for chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants, and you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, people refused to, hear, to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. So, Samuel was the lead prophet in those days. There were others, but he was the primary one. And we read here that his sons were put in as leaders or judges over their respective areas. And we also know that although Samuel was one of Israel's better prophets, <coughs> his sons did not share his godly ways. Um, interesting enough, I think that's what happened to Eli as well when Samuel was put in as prophet. Eli's sons were the, did not share. Eli's ways. Now here Samuel unfortunately is repeating that same cycle. And unfortunately because of his son's corruption and probably those before them, they tainted the view of people's view of godly leadership. And I think that contributed to the people's desire for a king. They said, you know what, this is not working. We want something different. And too often corrupt leaders serving in the name of God not only give themselves a bad name, but they cloud the image of God for those under them as well. So God consoles Samuel in verse 7 that it was in fact God's leadership that they were rejecting, not Samuel's, although it was both. And whereas God used to lead them into battle, now in verse 19, they want an earthly king to lead them into battle. So all those battles they fought, um, where God fought for them, delivered them, they've forgotten that. And they say, no, no, we want a man to lead us into battle, not God. And, you know, one can't help but wonder if Samuel's son's behavior was the final straw that kind of broke the people's trust in godly leadership here, and now they wanted um, to be like those around them. They lost the the wonder, I guess, of of God's leadership, and they were looking for man instead now. And so began a long string of kings. Uh, We won't go through all those. Some were good, some were bad, and while some followed the ways of God... Uh, Many fulfilled Samuel's, he gave kind of a a dim view of of what a king would do here, and many followed what Samuel had predicted here in oppression, taxation, and just uh, general unpleasantness for those under them. And such is the way of earthly leaders who are given too much authority and not enough accountability. Kings in those days answered to no one, and they did pretty much what they wanted to do um, until someone killed them and started over again, but anyway... That was I can't imagine living in a time like that. And through it all, the people continued to struggle with idol worship. And finally, God, uh, through multiple prophets, warned them that there'd be a judgment coming more than the what they'd ever experienced before. And we know the story. They were uh, Babylon came, conquered them, they were exiled to Babylon, and that exile, I believe, broke the nation of Israel um, as the what they had become. Uh, being carried away like that simply broke them as a nation, almost like going back to Egypt again and being slaves. All they had achieved as a powerful nation was lost, uh, their best people were killed or, t- or or taken away, their beautiful temple was destroyed, and their identity as a nation was lost for a time. It was also a time of purification. Interesting enough, God used this as a time of purifying His children. Um, the reason that they were taken away was because their reoccurring habit of idol worship. And now they were taken to a country, to a city, that was uh, strictly devoted to idol worship. And God purified them, not by stricter separation, but by saying, okay, this is what you guys keep wanting, Um, here you are, and simply immersing them completely in this foreign idolatrous culture. And I have to wonder, um, did they finally see firsthand the ugliness of a culture totally emptied of God? Um, We read some, but in their daily lives, what they encountered, uh, a culture that simply did not know God and that followed pagan practices. Did they finally come to their senses when they realized God had actually removed his blessing from them for a time um, before they would you know, get into trouble, they'd call and God would come running and save them. And here, uh, God simply turned away from them for a time and let them you know, lose everything, uh, their homeland, which you know, in their day was very, very important. And they finally realized, you know what, God is serious here about, about what he's warning us all these many years. Um, this really is a, a very serious thing. And I think that time in, in Babylon uh, made them realize that. But through it all, God did not totally abandon them. Um, We read of prophets like Ezekiel that God sent along, actually was one of the exiles going along, um, to encourage them as they were there and to help them maintain their connection with God. And through that dark time, there were still some bright spots, uh, people trusting in God, despite being totally surrounded by those who would try to destroy his people. Uh, The book of Esther happened during this time, I think more towards the end. Um, God's people were saved from destruction by the courage of a young woman who put others' lives above her own. Read of Daniel and his three friends, the courage they had to stand against the crowd. And um, we think of Daniel, this this is always kind of interesting to me, Daniel spent the majority of his adult life in service to a foreign king. And we hear today of lifetime politicians, and that brings a certain... Image when we talk of a lifetime politician. But that's what Daniel was. Daniel served in the presence of a king his entire life. And yet the only fault his enemies could find in him after being a politician his whole life was that he was too dedicated to his God. And unfortunately, that is not what we often see when that happens. But Daniel, as he was guided by the wisdom of God, influenced a number of pagan kings in the ways of God. It was believed he served under four different kings. Uh, To most of them, he was either a, a wise man or an advisor. He was in a position of influence. And it's believed that when Jesus was born, the wise men who came from the East to worship the newborn Jesus may have gained their knowledge of his birth directly from the teachings of Daniel many, many generations ago or earlier before that. So Daniel left um, a mark in the position where he was giving um, given to serve. He was not he was serving in a position that many of us would shy away from. Um, a direct a direct uh, advisor uh, to a foreign king. I don't know how all that worked out, but God used Daniel in those ways, um, and God was still working. He was planning. He was preparing for the future. And I think it's interesting if, in fact, that's where the wise men came from, that Daniel's influence lasted how many generations later. Anyway, after 70 years of exile, the first Jews started returning to their homeland. One of their first priorities, and this this is interesting, um, as a religious nation, their first priority was to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed 70-plus years earlier when the Babylonians um, conquered them, and if we read the books of uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, they tell of this time of return, of rebuilding, and it was with great effort against strong opposition. The temple was rebuilt, and the people rejoiced that they once again had a place um, in their homeland to worship their God outside of the pagan influences. But unfortunately, all read this temple was nothing like the one that had been destroyed. The one Solomon had built was a very beautiful temple. Um, Ezra chapter 3 verse 12 says there was a number of the older people who would have lived in Israel, been taken to Babylon, and now came back, and they had seen the first temple before it was there, and they wept with much disappointment when they saw how much smaller and uh, less elaborate this new temple was. So apparently um, the one that was rebuilt was a lot less fancy than the one that had been destroyed. And while the younger people rejoiced, they had a temple again. The older ones said, wow, this is just not like the good old days, you know. And I had to wonder, you know, we know these people were very prone to idol worship. And had their first temple almost been, you know, too elaborate? Did it almost become a thing of worship in itself? I don't know that. Rather than the God who inhabited it. And did God allow that first temple to be destroyed and a lesser one built, simply to remind them that worshiping Him was more important than having a beautiful place in which to do it. I don't know. thought that came to me. But we do know that after Israel returned to their land, they never fell back into idol worship. And we don't read a whole lot more of what happened during the final 500 years before the coming of Christ. Uh, The last 400 of those years were known as the silent years when God did not speak through any more prophets. Um, Prophets over the ages were rejected. They were ridiculed. Um, they had been God's messengers to his people, and most of them at some point in time faced a certain amount of opposition. The people did not want to hear what they had to say, but they were God's primary means of communicating with his people. And during those last 400 years, even those prophets fell silent. There was no, there was no more um, word from God during that time. So what did Israel do during this time? If we look at secular history, there are some interesting events. But judging by the condition of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, I wonder if they might have exchanged their idol worship for um, a worship of the law. Uh, They they became very religious, very devoted to the law of Moses, and by the time Jesus shows up, we know they had taken that almost to the extent of idol worship, raising the law above all else to a a level that God never intended it to be, I believe. They added explanations, details, applications to the point where it became almost impossible to keep the law. I think their religion became their their new king, their new idol. The Old Testament then uh, ends with the warning of a curse in the end of Malachi. The book of Malachi recounts, kind of gives, again, an overview of Israel's long history of unfaithfulness to God and the punishments they deserve. But also a promise that God's plan will continue. His promise to those who remain faithful. Malachi 4.2 says, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings. So giving a prophecy forward um, of something that's coming, something that's much more than what they had were used to at that time. And that was, I believe, the last of the hundreds of prophecies about the coming Messiah. And then into this Time of spiritual darkness, uh, 400 years of spiritual darkness, a new light finally dawns. And we know the story there. Uh, this new light, very small at first, largely unnoticed except by a handful of shepherds. The Apostle John describes the arrival of this new light in a spiritual sense in the opening of his gospel, in contrast to the other three gospels who give more of a literal account. And I would like to look at John's account there in the first chapter of the book of John, his account of this light that dawned after the time of darkness. In the beginning was the Word, and you notice here that the word, Word, is capitalized. That is um, indicating that this is speaking of Jesus here. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, without Him, Nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. (coughs) He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believed on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This, is, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John describes Jesus here as being there from the beginning. Um, he was the hand that created man, and yet man did not recognize him when he came. He came to his own and his chosen ones through history that we looked at here. Um, all of those, the many prophecies they had been given of, of the chosen one finally coming, um, they rejected him. They did, not, they did not see him for who he was. And yet, he brought a light in a time of spiritual darkness here. He was the light, he was the only true light, the only source from which sinful man can receive light. And he would usher in a new era in a history of God's people here. One that exchanged the rigid separation of the Old Testament for loving relationship in the New Testament. Uh, not just law, but grace and truth as well, as verse 17 says. And not just born into the family, but through um, God. Being born through God and not through just um, your, your right ancestors. Also, a God who is close, not a God who is distant. In the Old Testament, God was rather distant. He only spoke through certain people. Um, The average person did not really relate to God. And we'll see that God brought personal guidance through His Holy Spirit. He became real to each one. Um, He became their personal guidance, their their personal conscience. Uh, Loving your neighbors as well as your enemies and spreading the good news to all people instead of protecting it tightly within a small group of chosen people like the Old Testament did. This change would obviously take some time. It would shake the foundations of the established religion at that time. It would be rejected by many and accepted by only a few, and it would be almost extinguished. This light would be almost extinguished, um, both by... The religious leaders of that time, and by you know the, those around them, would try very, very hard and extinguish this light. but yet this light would survive, and this light would th- would thrive, and this new phase of god 's plan would begin and we 'll look at that in a future time, but we end here on a note of of kind of a, a this new phase starting here um, four thousand years of Oh, almost, almost looked like spiritual darkness. Yes, there were light, there were light spots, there were bright spots in the Old Testament, but um, a lot of, a lot of, um, just yeah, falling away and, and not a not a connection with God, and God bringing in this new face, saying, you know, I have something better for you guys now. You learned who I was, but now I want you to know me personally, and that I believe is the message of the New Testament. So, with that thought, let's stand for prayer. And then remain standing for a closing song. Father in heaven, we thank you for all you have blessed us with. We thank you for the record that you have given us of your plan for your people down through history. We thank you that your plan is not yet finished. And we ask you to give us understanding and a trust to follow you even when the way seems unclear. We ask your blessing and your protection until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.